BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. We are going to start our program today with this question. You know, is America, well, really, is the Republican Party standing atop an ocean of blood? How do we get America back to being that shining city on the hill that other countries want to emulate? It seems to me like we've got to start with gun violence. We'll get to that in just a minute. Debbie Hines is going to drop by, our uh, legal analyst and former assistant attorney general for the state of Maryland and, you know, lawyer and all that sort of thing. And she's going to be uh, giving us a wrap up. The closing arguments in the Chauvin trial are happening right now. I wanted to just start out with basically, you know, my rant from Hartman Report this morning, which, you know, I, I really think that this is increasingly this is who we are. And it's a real tragedy that the Republican Party over 40 years has has reshaped America. We no longer trust our government. We no longer are like, you know, one for all and all for one. We're no longer, you know, my brother's keeper kind of thing. We no longer care for each other or take care of each other. Instead, we've been infected with this bizarre libertarian notion of, you know, freedom and individual liberty and all this kind of stuff, which basically is code for, you know, the billionaires feed us this stuff, right? And it's basically code for don't raise my taxes if I'm a billionaire. And it's killing us. And probably the best example of how it's killing us now is guns. You know, Ronald Reagan plagiarized John Kennedy, who quoted John Winthrop, you know, one of the Pilgrim founders, as I recall, who talked about America being that idealistic city on a hill. And then Reagan added the word shining to it. I think that we could now change that word to armed encampment. We're no longer a city on a hill. We are a fortress, you know, with guns sticking out everywhere. In fact, Republicans in the House, the Texas House of Representatives, just passed a so-called constitutional carry law that would allow anyone over 21 to carry a weapon, hidden or not, concealed or not, permit or not, experienced or not. Democrats tried to introduce a rider that said, uh, well, you know, okay, fine, everybody can carry, carry a gun unless they're a domestic terrorist or unless they're a white supremacist or unless they've engaged in, in domestic violence. And the Republicans vote that and voted that down. I mean, this, this is how bizarre it's gotten. You know, the whole city on a hill thing used to be th- that you know, when John Kennedy used, used that phrase, it was, you know, this is, we are what other countries want to be. We are, we are what they want to emulate. And isn't that a marvelous thing? I mean, isn't that how it should be? But tragically, apparently, yeah, there, there are countries that want to emulate us. Jair Bolsonaro, the strongman fascist who runs Brazil, has said, you know, yeah, we need to be just like America. You know, we're number two in COVID deaths. We don't do squat about COVID. You know, hey, just get back to work, buddy. And uh, so that's going on. And now with guns, he's saying he wants Brazil to be just like America. He wants everybody to have a gun. 
You know, an armed society is a polite society, don't you know? Right. Last week in Indianapolis, we had another mass shooter. I mean, we've had 147 mass shootings now since the beginning of this year. That's a 73% increase over the previous year. And the one in Indianapolis, his mother had contacted the police and said that she was pretty sure he was going to commit suicide by cop. They came by the house and they took away a shotgun. What did he do? He went out and bought a couple of high-powered assault weapons. I mean, it's America. You want a gun, you can get a gun. Right? It's just that simple. Even if you live someplace where you can't get a gun, you just drive 20 miles. It's no, you know, I mean, this is the problem Chicago has. All these folks in Chicago, yeah, yeah, there's gun laws in Chicago. And you hear these right-wingers going, well, you know, the gun laws in Chicago aren't doing much good. Well, you, you go right to the edge of Chicago, which is the border with Indiana. You cross the border, and what do you see? Literally blocks filled with gun sh shops. And some of the, you know, and, and regular gun, you know, events, gun open-air shows, selling opportunities. And, you know, where they don't have to do background checks or anything. Psychologists are now referring to our gun deaths, 147 mass shootings now in the first, what, four months of the year. They're referring to this as a contagion. And you've got Lauren Boebert, with all of her wisdom and training, saying that, you know, Anthony Fauci is calling this a public health emergency. What, what, is, what do guns have to do with public health? Well, it's one of the leading causes of death in America. That is public health. Meanwhile, Joe Biden, President Biden and the Democrats, they just proposed legislation. I mean, there's, there's literally legislation. I don't recall if it has passed the House yet or if it's supposed to this week that would limit magazines to 10 rounds. I mean, you know, how many rounds do you need to take down a deer? If you're shooting ducks, you, you know, you can only use three. It's about sportsmanship, right? But the Republicans are going, 10 rounds? That ain't enough. You might need 100 rounds. After all, if you got to take down your tyrannical government because that government is trying to give health care to everybody and pay off student debts and raise taxes on billionaires, we can't have tyranny like that. You got to have 100 round guns. You know, for the 18 years I've been doing this show, I have been saying that at the very least, as a starting point, something every American can understand and isn't going to confuse anybody, is let's get the DMV involved. Let's just register guns, license guns or gun owners, and insure gun owners the same way we do cars. And you've heard this rant enough times that I'm not, gonna, I'm not even going to repeat it here. But Stephen Colbert came out and said this over the weekend. He, you know, he said, why don't you just license cars, you know, guns like cars? And, you know, hopefully more celebrities will, will get with the program and say, hey, yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Let's do that. I mean, this is nowhere near as draconian as what Australia and, and most of Europe have done. But it's a start, and it's a start that every American could understand. Our country was, set on, it was created on a set of values and ideals. Obviously, we didn't act them out. We fought a civil war over, that, over those values and ideals. We've been fighting a cold civil war ever since. But hey, every century we get a little bit better. And I think, frankly, every generation we get a little bit better. I think it's time to recapture John Kennedy's idealism and make America a, a, a shining city on a hill that countries want to emulate, not because we're covered in blood, but because we're leading the world in positive things like education or health care or science. Mark in Valley, Washington. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? I, 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 I got to preface this. I don't disagree that we need to do something about the gun violence, and I'm all for total background checks. But I disagree with the liability insurance because, first off, government and industry work together for political outcomes that they want. And the fastest way you can make guns, not illegal, just unattainable, is by getting the insurance company in collusion over time to make the liability insurance so expensive you can't afford them. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that's what happens with cars, Mark. I mean, if you, if you get three DUIs, you're going to suddenly discover that your car insurance isn't, no, 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 isn't no. 300 bucks a year no, anymore. No, no. It's, I, I, no. Uh, let's, right now, right now, if you own a pit bull, you can't get homeowner's insurance in some places because other people who are careless with their dogs or brutal with their dogs have let pit bulls get a bad rap. So there's plenty yeah. of places right now where you could have done nothing wrong but just because you own a pit bull, you can't get homeowners. And they could do the exact same thing with guns. Yeah. And that's bad because why? I mean, pit bulls actually do because kill people. They could make year. it to where, to where people like me can't afford to own a gun because of a liability insurance, which basically takes away my right to own a gun. And it is so vitally important to you to own a gun because why? Because I live in Redneckville that's full of white supremacists and neo-Nazis. I live 30, 38 miles north of Spokane, Washington. I'm in the heart of Trump country where these people have their live round practice areas. Yeah, I need a gun. Yeah. There's nuts so out here. Th- so then don't, you know, so don't do the things that would cause a, an insurance company to say that you're a risk. You're missing my point. No, if I think I'm making your point. And the insurance company, if, if the government and the insurance companies decide they want to get rid of a certain class of guns or get rid of guns entirely, they can collude to raise the liability on all guns to where the average person cannot afford one. And that's my only reason why I don't agree with yeah. your liability insurance on guns. I, I get that, Mark, but but it seems to me that you're you're creating a giant hypothetical here, and I see no evidence of that uh, hypothetical being one, used one that anywhere. I've seen, uh, yeah. Well, you, I've seen you know, you're, talking, aspects. you're talking about pit bulls. I mean, you know, I, 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 I frankly can't speak to that because I've never had a pit bull and I've never had to deal with an insurance company. But I would assume that that insurance companies would have some sort of a some sort of a waiver in there. Like, you know, you have to you have to keep your pit bull under certain circumstances or something no. like that. I, you know, no. pit bulls, chows, pit bulls, chows, dobes. And even some places, German shepherds, you cannot get homeowners. Interesting. Well, uh, you know, it's something that we would have to discuss. I mean, that's my whole point is that I think that at least we need to start a conversation about these topics. And we're not. You know, we're, we're, we're just generally speaking, not talking about them at all. Tom Hartman here with you. Inflation is in the news, principally because there's a bunch of Republicans yelling and screaming that if Joe Biden gets his infrastructure package or if Joe Biden gets his COVID relief package, trillions of dollars, we're going to have to borrow money, put it on our national credit card. It's going to cause inflation. Pretty soon you're going to have to pay 15% to buy a house. Quack, 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 quack. I think this is crazy. But I wanted to check with an actual economist to find out, you know, specifically what causes inflation. How does it happen? I have my theories. We, I can discuss them with Professor Richard Wolf. I'd like to hear his professor of economics, in fact, the co-founder of Democracy at Work.info, the author of numerous books, including The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, democracyatwork.info, and rdwolf with two fs.com, his websites. So you can tweet him at profwolf with two fs. Professor Wolf, inflation, when does everything become unaffordable? What exactly is inflation and what are the things that produce it in economies small and large? Well, you know, it's one of those uh, phenomena that afflict capitalist economies as they had before capitalism that attracts not only attention, but lots of mystification, sort of this uh, magical topic. So in order to understand it, you kind of have to go backwards and become very simply focused. So let's begin. And inflation is defined as a situation when prices in general go up. Not every price and not each price the same amount, but a general rise in prices is all that the word inflation means. Goods and services in general go up in price. Number one. Number two, simple. 
the people who decide on prices are employers, the people who own and operate businesses, because that's where most goods and services come from. And under a private enterprise system, the individuals who set the prices are the owners, operators, chief executives of corporations. So the first question to understand, the first point, is that if you have a general rise in prices, it's the business community that's doing that. Now the next question, why would the business community do it? Well, the first answer, again, simple, is because it's profitable. Easiest, quickest, and best way to make more profits, which is to take whatever it is you're producing and charge more for each unit of it that you sell. In other words, to raise the price. So in many cases, there's an inflation because businesses are raising prices to make more profits. But of course, business never wants to be held accountable for making more profits by raising prices. So it has always been attractive for them and the publicists that they hire to come up with other reasons. And here are the two most usual ones. Number one, it's called cost push inflation. That's when they can say, gee, I'm not raising the price to make more money. I'm only doing it because some cost I have has gone up and I just want to recoup the money I have to pay extra for the input by raising the price of my output. So, for example, when the oil prices went crazy in the 70s, 80s, and so on, lots of businesses raised their prices and when asked why I said, well, the price of oil went up. It is, of course, only possible to know whether the price increase the business decided on had anything really to do with the cost price going up of oil. They may have had an oil price go up by 5%, but jacked up their prices by 20 unless you could see the books of these companies, which they are not required to show any reporter, well then, they could use the oil as an excuse. The second major reason why businesses uh, could point to something other than their own profit drive was when the government printed a lot of extra money, the way it is doing now, but the way it also did under the Trump administration, which is why what the Republicans are saying is straight out lying. There's no nice way to say it. Yes, when the government prints a lot more money and people have a lot more money in their hands, then it's possible for businesses to jack up prices because people have the money to pay. And so you can say there's some contribution being made by government printing. But I can give you a hundred examples in the history of the last 200 years of capitalism where governments have printed money and it has not produced a great inflation. And the best example is the last five or ten years when we have increased money like it's going out of style, but there's been no general inflation of goods and services because all of that money was either hoarded by rich people or used by them to play in the stock market. There, indeed, was an inflation in the stock market, which is where all that money went. But you can see, as this example shows, that there's no necessary link between borrowing more and printing more money on the one hand and inflation. The easiest way to remember is inflation is something that businesses do and when they give you a reason why they're doing it, keep in mind that they want to keep you away from understanding that profit drives that decision. Perhaps my understanding of this is incomplete. My understanding is that when the Fed creates money, they're literally creating money. That yes. When the federal government, as a consequence of, the, of an act of Congress, borrows money and spends that money, they're not printing money. They are merely borrowing money. I'm buying treasury bills. I'm loaning money to the Fed. The Fed is using that loaned money. And if that's not printing money, I don't see where all these Republicans get so hysterical about, oh, the Fed is going to have to borrow money, or, or the, not the Fed, the, the Treasury Department is going to have to borrow more money. Our national debt is going up. That's going to produce inflation. What am I missing? Is there a relationship between inflation and national debt? No necessary relationship. 
what can happen and what does sometimes happen is that when the Treasury has to borrow to cover a budget deficit, it issues those famous IOUs called Treasury Securities. It goes to corporations, rich people, foreign governments, and borrows money that way. The foreign governments, the rich individuals, and the corporations are then free in our system to turn around and sell that treasury security to the Federal Reserve, which can print the money to buy it. Only if that second thing happens, if the people who lent money to the Treasury turn around and sell those Treasury securities to the Federal Reserve, only then is the money supply increased. And then it depends on what is done by the rich people, corporations, and foreign governments with the money. If they hold on to it or if they use it to speculate in the stock market, there will be no inflation of goods and services. And that's exactly what has happened over the last five or ten years. So all this hand-wringing about inflation by these Republican senators who are freaked out about the infrastructure spending is just based in nothing? Absolutely. Their problem is they have to oppose the Democrats. Part of what we have was a monopoly of two parties. Whatever the one party does, the other one has to say something else. They may be afraid that eventually there'll be a tax on corporations and the rich to pay for all this spending, so they'd rather not have the spending. But the stuff about inflation is pure make-believe to give their opposition the appearance of having some national well-being at its core. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Got it. Thank you so much, Professor. You're very welcome, Tom. Great talking with you as always. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Bob in Chula Vista, San Diego, California. Hey, Bob, what's up? I just really enjoy your show. Just wanted to ask you, given the dark times that we've been through, what gives you, from a progressive standpoint, hope for a better future for our younger generation? There are a whole bunch of things that give me hope, Bob. Number one, we've got a whole younger generation coming up who have rejected the indoctrination of Reaganism and all the stuff that preceded it that so many of us were subjected throughout our lives that even allowed for people like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama to basically continue the neoliberal line, you know, that, you know, we've got to worry about deficits and we've got to worry about Republicans and we've got to cut taxes and all this kind of BS. There's a whole generation looking at that going, that's nuts. Healthcare should be a, a right for everybody. Education should be a right for everybody. We're the only country in the world where people go into debt to go to college. We're the only country in the world where people go into debt if they get sick. Half a million people a year in the United States declare bankruptcy because somebody got sick. And with COVID now, it's exploding those numbers. So number one, you've got the younger generation. Number two, politics goes in cycles. There are these 80-year cycles of war and peace and depression, which concern me tremendously. There's also a 40- or 50-year cycle of pendulum swinging back and forth between what you might call right or left. And I truly believe, and particularly watching Joe Biden, Joe Biden is a politician's politician. He's the guy who puts his finger to the wind and says, which way is the wind blowing? Oh, that's what I'll do. And there's a good side to that, right? Basically, he goes with Mm -hmm. what the main 
mainstream wants. And Joe Biden turning himself into FDR right in front of our eyes is the best indication out there that the entire country wants FDR right now because that's what he's doing and it's getting done. The Republicans, it appears to me, are committing Harry Carey. They're, they're committing political suicide in instance after instance. Their agenda has been revealed. White racism, white supremacy, voter suppression based on color used to sell in the United States. In fact, it used to be invisible. When states passed this kind of legislation, it was always reported in the news as well. Another state's rights initiative, you know, without just coming right out and saying another effort to suppress the black vote. Now they're coming out and saying it. You've mm-hmm. got this last vestige, this last kind of hanging on to the whole thing, you know, with, with billionaire Rupert Murdoch and Fox News over there in the corner. And they're becoming increasingly marginalized as it's becoming more and more obvious that their agenda is really all about white supremacy and whatever's best for billionaires is best for, in their minds, the rest of us. All of this stuff is like right out front. I've been talking about this for 18 years on this program. I've been watching this for my whole entire life, the politics of all this, you know, ever since really when I was 16, when I got radicalized, as it were, in, in politics. And I think that this is like absolutely one of the very best times. Plus, climate change is getting real. Uh, you know, five, ten years ago, you had people going, oh, climate change. Oh, yeah, yeah. You can't say that storm had to do with that. Or you can't say that drought had to do with that. Nobody's even disputing that anymore. Nobody mm-hmm. is disputing that anymore. You know, I think that this is all these are all things that I'm frankly very sure. optimistic about. I am concerned about how far climate change has gone. I am concerned about how far the right wing has gotten. I am concerned about, you know, uh, right wing political violence and racism in America. But it looks to me like they're all on the short end of the stick, as it were. You're really giving me a sense of hope for the future. And I'm learning new things. Like, I didn't even know about the German solar program. And how, oh, that was amazing. Know, we that could was amazing. them and give salt, you know, yeah, cover and, all our roofs. And it literally... You know? It literally cost nobody anything because what they calculated was, okay, it'll cost about seven times your electricity over a 10-year period to pay the mortgage on that solar panel on your house. And it would cost the utilities seven times current rates to build the nuclear power plant. So we simply have the utilities give that seven times that would have gone to the nuclear power plant to the people to put the solar panels on their houses. That way the people are paying the mortgage off with that money. In other words, it's passed through. It's completely free. The banks get the mortgage money at 1% or 2%, so they show a small profit. The government backstops that 100%. Nobody took any risk. Nobody, at the end of the day, spent any money. And the lifespan of these solar panels is 40 years. And this was all done on a 10-year event horizon. So it's like, you know, yeah, we could do that here. There's so much yeah. we could be doing, Bob. There is, there's just so much positive stuff right. out there. You're sort of channeling some of my deeper thoughts. I keep telling my friends the pendulum's swinging. It's swinging. And uh, oh, the, it's the mere swung. fact that Bernie nearly took the Democratic Party, he came very close. And he's the chair of the budget committee, the most powerful committee in the yeah. Senate. I mean, you know, don't count yeah. Bernie out. And Elizabeth Warren has been given all kinds of power that she didn't have before. Joe yeah, Biden was, is uh, elevating progressives. Yesterday, Elizabeth Warren yesterday was talking about forgiving $50,000 of student debt. Right, all right. Students. Yeah, she's leaning, she's so, leaning hard on, on Biden about that. So, yeah, I'm very, very hopeful. David in Riverside, California. Hey, David, what's up? Hey, Tom, 2,488 soldiers died in Afghanistan and Iraq. Now, back when there was 20 suicides a day, which is like 7,300 that, that died from suicide, those people have been ignored. I think they deserve some kind of recognition that, that the stress and that their, their service should be honored in some way. And... Uh, one other point, I, was, I want to see what you think about this. There was four million slaves back during the Civil War, and at $1,000 a shot, that's something like $4 billion. The federal budget in 1861 was all of $80 million. So the idea that we could buy out slavery, that's why that didn't work when I finally looked up the numbers. Well, and what was being offered was 40 they, acres and a mule, which was doable, by the way. Yes. And, you know, that all got blown up in the 1876 election, the Tilden Hayes right. election, when they stabbed African-Americans in the back 
to resolve the fact that neither Hayes nor Tilden had hit the threshold on the on the uh, Electoral College because you had four states, three southern states and, and Oregon that uh, sent competing slates uh, of electors. And by the way, that's what they were trying to replicate on January 6th in the Capitol. But right. it wasn't that much that was being offered. I mean, $1,000 back then was a hell of a lot of money. I mean, it is today, too. But but I think that there are lots of places where we could be focusing on what could be called reparations that would be very, very useful. And, well, that's the and, economics of the war. That's why they fought it. I mean, that valuable asset of slaves, yeah, you'd go to war to fight for that. And the reason why I brought this up is I just want to end that states' rights baloney. Yeah. There you go. Uh, I'm with you. David, thank you for the call. David, in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hey, David, what's on your mind? I read like 15, 20 years ago, W.E. Deming's comment. It sounded crazy to me at the time, but it makes total sense today. He said that workers should be able to sue their employers for bad management practices. Workers should be able to sue management for, for workers not being able to take pride in workmanship. Hmm. It just seems like micromanagement and age discrimination is so rampant in our workplaces today that what he said makes total sense to me today, but it didn't 20 years ago. Well, I can see where a stockholder would have standing to sue management like that, but I don't see where a worker would. Is there some well, he, law that he I'm acknowledged missing? That it, he acknowledged that, that workers don't, but that they should. If they had a union, they could. I mean, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a technical lawsuit, but the union could be holding the employers accountable. Unions routinely hold employers accountable for that kind of thing. Absolutely. Thanks for the call, Aubrey in Seattle. Hey, Aubrey, what's up? If we got a receipt for our taxes that showed exactly what we paid and what the money went to, so we paid this much and it went to the schools, this much went to defense. They do that in Norway. They do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not only that, the government calculates your taxes for you, sends you basically a postcard that says, okay, here's how much you owe, here's why, and here's where the money is going to go. You sign off on it, make any corrections necessary, mail it back, and boom, that's it. And there have been multiple attempts here in the United States to emulate both parts of that, to have the government calculate your taxes, because they have everything, right? If I do a W-2 for somebody, I submit it to the government. So the government government knows that that person has W-2 income or 1099 income, excuse me. The industry, the Quicken Books industry, right, tax preparing industry actually has a substantial lobby in Washington, D.C., and they have been preventing legislation that would allow the government to do your taxes for you. You can always correct it, of course, and to tell you where that money went. Norway is not the only country that does this. A number of countries in Europe do it. Uh, Michael Moore talks about it, I'm pretty sure, in his book, Where to Invade Next. So, yeah, it's entirely possible, Aubrey. We just need to get Congress on the stick. Yeah, I think that would be so awesome because I just hear, you know, Republicans saying that, you know, it's just a waste and, you know, they don't know where it's going and, it's you know, et cetera. Yeah. Just complaining yeah, about no, it's, it. It's, 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 it it's crazy. Nice to know where it's going. Yeah, and we have this entire industry in the United States that we spend literally hundreds of billions of dollars on for tax preparation that's completely unnecessary. Aubrey, thank you. Sammy in Longview, Washington. Hey, Sammy, what's up? People on Social Security at the lower rungs are being taxed. Well, the last year we've had millions and millions of people unemployed, and nobody ever mentions that unemployment is taxable income. Prior to Ronald Reagan, it was never taxed. He came to office, let's kick the working man when he's down. What a lot of people yep. don't understand is if you're getting $600 a week, they're taking 10% of that. So at the end of the month, you're out 240 bucks if you pay your taxes. Most people don't because they need everything they can get. Then at the end of the year, let's say they get a job, three months into their job, guess who comes knocking? We want our taxes. So there goes right. the next five paychecks. Yep. You're absolutely right, Sammy. And, uh, you know, Reagan, Reagan taxed basically three things. He taxed Social Security income, which is nuts. He taxed unemployment income, which, as you point out, is kicking people when they're down. And while tip income technically had always been taxable, it had always been, you know, part of the list, there was no mechanism for keeping track of it. And so, you know, 99.9% of tip income never got reported. 
And everybody just kind of winked and nod about that, you know, and waiters and waitresses or wait, serving people would, you know, divide up their tips after at the end of the day or keep them or what, however it worked. And Reagan put into place a system with the employers where the employers could take part of the money. In exchange for that, basically, they were turning you over to the IRS. And, and I think that all three of those things should be reversed. I think it's, it's just it's just crazy. Yeah, but they don't call it unemployment, you lazy bum. It's unemployment insurance. No insurance program. If you get an insurance settlement, it's not taxed. So, right. I don't know. Right. And it's, this should be, too. And frankly, Social Security is also insurance. It's the old age disability insurance program. And it also should not be taxed. Sammy, I totally agree with you. Thank you. Well said. Michael in Bronx, New York. Hey, Michael, what's up? Hi, Tom. How you doing? Good. I've got a cat attacking me, but other than that, I'm good. You two with cats? <laughs> I've got two yeah, cats I, at home. We have three, and one of them's in the studio here, and he does not want to leave. Um, so, anyway, what's up? <laughs> All right, well, you know that the Chauvin case, okay, uh-huh. in the closing arguments right now, right? Yeah. And yeah. The, the defense claimed last week that Derek Chauvin did not cause the death of George Floyd, but rather carbon monoxide was the culprit for George Floyd's death. So right. They kind of knocked that reason, down, though, pretty quickly. The prosecution thing, did. Yeah. And then my whole thing is that who put George Floyd in that position to begin with and kept him right. there? It was right. the, it was defendant Chauvin and the other cops. I would strongly encourage the prosecution to raise that up, even in their rebuttal, because I know that the defense can keep coming up with this excuse, that excuse. As far as I'm concerned, they backed themselves up in the corner with that thing of carbon monoxide. It's either it was the knee to the neck and throat, or the poor guy, if there was carbon monoxide involved, was smothered by it because of those four guys. I think unless there's a real ringer on the jury, this is going to be a, a, a major conviction. Uh, it's going to be a blowout conviction. I'm um, thinking the uh, same. You know, I'm thinking the same thing. But, either conviction or a hung jury. But I would encourage everybody yeah. to be very careful and stay safe because I also hear right wing punditry saying, "Oh, this is going to be protests. It's going to be riots in the anticipation of an acquittal." Nobody's saying there's being an acquittal. We don't know how this jury will respond. But when you think back to January 6th of this year, the insurrectionists, which hundreds and thousands of them are still on the loose, they will likely protest a conviction because conviction goes against the Trumpism about police brutality and how Trump is on record encouraging all that stuff. So, yeah, that's interesting. It's very yeah, and there's very little discussion about, you know, right-wing violence and, and riots and things. Thank but, you. Uh, you know, I agree, I agree with you. I think that there's, there, there's a sub, substantial risk there. Michael, thank you for the call. Brian in, in uh, Anaheim, California. Hey, Brian, what's up? Hey, Tom. Let me tell you really quick. First, I, am, I am loving being a Patreon. I love the members-only videos. I love the three-hour podcast. It is uh, the best time cool. $10 a month I spend, and I would highly recommend that to anyone listening. Um, and I, I could not agree with you more that we need to yeah. we need to take off the kid gloves and start using words like dangerous to describe the GAP. And I would argue that in a manner of speaking, one of the things that makes them the most you know, dangerous is that they are against democracy. You know, voter suppression, gerrymandering, fighting to keep the electoral college in place versus having a national popular vote, fighting to keep the filibuster in place. And I, I don't believe it's an unfair exaggeration to say that where the GOP is taking us is a slippery slope to dictatorship. And yeah. I think we should use the Democratic bully pulpit to be hammering very concise, pointed messages. And I would say that needs to be one of the primary frames. What do you, what do you think? I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. And, and I think that you know, we, have, uh, we have a crisis of, of democracy in the United States right now. It's nothing new. I mean, you know, it used to be how many jelly beans are in this jar or recite the Constitution backwards, stuff like that. But it's being seen with new eyes. It's being seen in a different way. It's being seen in, in an awakened way. And, and I just, you know, I, I realize that the Republicans think that their salvation is going to be if they can just stop people from voting, make it hard for people to vote. I think it's going to blow up in their face. I think, I think even more people are going to show up to vote 
um, specifically because of all these efforts at suppression. Brian, thanks for the call. Ron in Chicago. Hey, Ron, what's up? Uh, yes, uh, in Chicago yesterday afternoon, a uh, man drove his uh, seven-year-old daughter to a uh, McDonald's and while waiting in line at the drive through shots rang out in the uh, Seven-year-old girl was shot six times, and this isn't even news. Oh anymore. my! Yeah, yeah. Just uh, and also, also the uh, state of Indiana has uh, the uh, red flag laws about uh, mm-hmm. people who are, uh, you know, at a risk. And the uh, shooter at the Federal Express, he's still able to get a gun. So I don't know how that. Yeah, you know, we can't solve these problems regionally. Sort of you can. I mean, in the Northeast, you've got enough states that all have very similar gun laws that that it dramatically reduces gun crime in, in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, uh, Rhode Island, that area. But in the Midwest, no, you can't do it regionally. It's got to, we've got to have national solutions. And I think we start out by getting weapons of war off the, off the streets. Ron, thank you for the call. Andrea in Las Vegas. Hey, Andrea, last minute uh, before the break here. Yes, I have a comment about the mass shooting. So what we need to dial mm-hmm. in on, and I, you talk about it a little bit, Tom, but not you don't really specify. You have a psychologist that goes on your show. You guys need to dial in on the men. It's men doing it. And mm-hmm. a lot of women are taking, the re, taking up the responsibility. That, that it's enough enough. Men out there, if you're listening, you guys need to get together with other men and talk about this. And you do the psychology on it because it's all men. Something yeah. has to be addressed with that, even in the legislation. It has to be because it's if maybe maybe one woman did it. She had some domestic issue, but she went after the boyfriend. These men are going after everybody. There's something right. the psychology there is something is really off, and it has to be addressed. Like I'm saying right now, not like oh I you agree. know he's black or he's white. He's a man. Sorry. No, I get it, and, and it, which raises the question: To what extent is this cultural? indoctrination of men and to what extent is this simply testosterone is the most dangerous drug on earth i I believe it's both um but i don't know how to weight those two things and i'm not sure that anybody's done the really good research that's necessary on that but you're absolutely right and uh you know and and the men are out there andrea thank you for the call how would you solve our gun problem in the united states Got any, got any solutions? You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Or for that matter, our political problem. Debbie Hines is going to drop by, by the way, and give us an update on the Chauvin trial in just a few minutes. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Today we're reading from Our Women on the Ground, essays by Arab women reporting from the Arab world. And this is from the introduction by Sahafia. When I first visited Raqqa Hassan's Facebook page in 2014, I think it's Rakia Hassan, in 2014, I was struck by her profile photo. The Syrian woman had paired a black hijab with a figure-hugging top that was embroidered with gold sequins. Her eyebrows were impeccably groomed and bronzer contoured her cheekbones. It was a daring look, considering that she lived in Raqqa, the northern Syrian city that was, at the time, controlled by the most brutal Islamist group in the world. Most striking, though, was the defiant expression on Rakia's face, a defiance reflected in each one of her Facebook posts. Everything about the petite woman screamed, I am here and I will not be silenced. Rakia was a Sahafia, a woman journalist, who secretly reported on the crimes of ISIS from inside Raqqa. But she was no ordinary reporter, at least by mainstream media standards. The 31-year-old of Kurdish descent wasn't employed by a major news outlet. 
She never had a byline or a dateline and was never trained to cover warfare. She hadn't conducted any interviews, and she certainly wasn't impartial. She participated in anti-government protests and openly criticized Syrian President Bashir al-Assad. Online, Rakia was fearless, even though vocal opponents of ISIS were often swiftly executed. The citizens Sahafia wrote in chilling detail under a pen name, Nisan Ibrahim, about the atrocities the group was waging on the people of Raqqa. She shared her reports on Facebook, sometimes posting several times a day. As Rakia amassed a large social media following, her friends advised her to take down the photos of herself that were viewable to the public to protect her identity, but she refused. A philosophy graduate at the University of Aleppo, Rakia was known for the personal, poetic, and somber tone of her social media posts, which were always written in Arabic. She wavered between reporting what she'd witnessed and writing about how she felt. In December 2014, less than a year after ISIS declared Raqqa the capital of its caliphate, she posted the following. In Syria, life and dignity have become two parallel lines that never meet. Rakia mostly referred to ISIS as Daesh, the acronym for al-Dawa al-Islayah, uh, the Islamic State of Iraq and Greater Syria, which has reportedly drawn the ire of some ISIS commanders as it strips the terror group's label of its reference to Islam. Daesh has closed all internet cafes in the countryside, and most likely in the city too, the citizen Sahafia wrote in June 2015. Without the internet, we will lose our only way of communicating. Dear God, emigration is a loss of dignity and a form of humiliation, while staying here is hell. Dear God, where should we go? What Rakia presented in her harrowing posts was an authentic account of the events unraveling on the ground in Raqqa. Those accounts came at a time when few Westerners could report from within Syria, but they nonetheless commanded the international journalistic narrative on the country from afar. One of Rakia's final posts on Facebook was also her most unsettling. I'm in Raqqa and I've received death threats, she wrote on July 20th, 2015. When ISIS soldiers arrest me and kill me, it will be okay, because while they will cut off my head, I'll still have dignity, which is better than living in humiliation. Shortly after that post, Rakia was abducted by ISIS and never heard from again. In January 2016, her brother received confirmation from the terror group that she had been murdered along with five other women. At the time of this writing, Rakia's body has not been returned to her family. Well before Rakia was killed, I wondered what her story was. Why did she turn to writing and citizen journalism, despite knowing that death would be a very likely outcome of her outspokenness? Why did she choose the pen name Nisan, which means April in Arabic? How did she reconcile the identity she presented online with what was expected of her at home or by the society she lived in? Much like Rakia, scores of women in or from the Arab world and broader Middle East have quietly and courageously risked their lives to write about the coming apart of their region. These women are fierce reporters who have helped shape the narratives of perhaps the most important moments in their homeland's modern history, a time of failed revolutions and violent warfare, widespread political and social upheaval, and the worst refugee crisis since the end of the Second World War. And yet, despite their access, expertise, and the obstacles they must overcome in order to do their jobs, they haven't received as much attention as their Western and often white male peers. Our Women on the Ground, this book, presents intimate and rarely heard accounts of what it's like for a woman to report on a region she hails from. The stories of the 19 Sahafiat, whose essays make up this collection, are crucial not only because they have contributed to our understanding of what is transpiring in some of the most dangerous countries and protracted conflicts in the world, but also because they intrepidly crush stereotypes of what it means to be an Arab or Middle Eastern woman today, especially in the era of U.S. President Donald Trump, the rise of populism, and the far right in Europe and elsewhere, and ISIS. Arab women are often misunderstood on multiple levels and by multiple groups. On one hand, an Arab woman may be victimized or pitied by outsiders who think her to be submissive, oppressed, or subjugated. She's occasionally boxed into one identity, whereby, for example, her Arab identity is incorrectly conflated with a Muslim one, and she is frequently exoticized or superficially celebrated. On the other hand, an outspoken Arab woman is sometimes deemed improper or an anomaly by both outsiders and the society around her. Professionally, she might be considered less of a threat than her male peers or not taken seriously, and she is sometimes actively silenced or passively unheard. This anthology is, in part, an effort to disrupt such flimsy stereotypes. The Sahafiat come from different generations, faiths, and nationalities, reflecting the diversity of an entire region. They are writers, reporters, broadcast journalists, and photojournalists. Our Women on the Ground is the book. Well, let's check in with Debbie Hines. I am DebbieHines.com on the internet. I am Debbie Hines on Twitter. 
as well. Debbie, a uh, trial lawyer, legal political commentator, former prosecutor, former assistant attorney general of the state of Maryland. Debbie, welcome back. What's going on in the Chauvin trial today? I see that the uh, defense is making their argument. I only caught a little bit of the prosecution argument this morning, so bring us up to date. Okay, so we're almost ready to give the case to the jury. It's been over three weeks, over 35 witnesses, and here we are. So the prosecution, just so you know, the prosecution goes twice in any criminal case. They go once, as they've already done, and then the defense gives their closing, and then the prosecution speaks last, and that's because they have the burden of proof. So the first Hmm. time that they were up at the bat speaking, you know, they started off, I think, in a really good way, making George Floyd human. They show pictures of him growing up and his family and just to create that this is what this is about. He's not on trial, but this is what we are seeking murder charges for this man. So they did a really good job of just starting that out as opposed to going, you know, directly into the law and second degree and manslaughter and everything. And then I think that what they wanted, what they did, they wanted to just give the jury themes. And so the theme that they gave them, and this is almost verbatim, is what you saw happen, happened. I mean, meaning, <clears throat> don't let this defense come up here and tell you that. Don't believe your lying eyes. What you, his words were exactly. Right. What you saw happen, happened. And so that's, you know, the first theme. And then one of the other interesting things that they came up with, as a former prosecutor, we never do this, generally speaking. Um, people always ask, well, why did someone do that? Why would they have murdered the person? Why did they commit that crime? And in a, in a criminal case, you're not required to explain the why. But they brought that up because that is a question that jurors and lay people really want to know. And what he said was he did it because he did it on purpose. That is the why. He was just because he could. He did not have to listen to the bystanders telling him to get off of his knee. He did it because of pride and ego, just because he could. And that brings it clear, though that's not an element of the crime, but it makes, you know, gives the jurors back there something to talk about in support of the verdict. And then we went into what are the actual elements of the crime. He's charged with three uh, three crimes, murder in the second degree, murder in third degree, and with manslaughter. And just, you know, none of those require intent. Uh, they're not first degree. They don't require that he intended to kill Mr. Floyd. But second degree is the only, the distinction is second degree is committing a felony. So the act that you did that caused the death of someone, you committed a felony. And the felony that's committed, or the state is alleging, is a third degree assault charge, which in Minneapolis, Minnesota is a felony. And then under, and it carries, the, the second degree carries the highest. It carries 40 years maximum in jail, whether you get it or not, it's 40 years. And then third degree manslaughter, the distinction is not a requirement of a felony having been committed to cause a person's death, but just the, the fact that you were callous, that you um, disregarded human life, and that substantially caused, you know, was a result of that person's death, substantially, whether in combination with anything else. And manslaughter, which is the lowest charge that they discussed, is really just negligence. I mean, you didn't yeah. intend to commit the person's life, you didn't do anything really bad, but you you know, negligence was caused. So they got off the elements, but they basically let the jury know that it's up to you. I mean, but do not, do not let the defense say you cannot believe what you saw happen, happened. Right. Yeah. Which the defense is no doubt going to try to do. If the argument that the prosecution made today spoke to motive, you know, basically he killed him because he could. um, Doesn't that argue for for first degree murder? But it's not a first, you know, it's not a first degree murder case. I realize that's not one of the charges. I mean, I've always said I think they could charge a first degree, but here's where the prosecutor did not charge. Um, And we can go back and forth what we believe as progressives and, you know, African-Americans and other progressive people should have charged. But sometimes if you overcharge, meaning you don't think you can get the conviction, one the highest charge, a lot of times the jury will not come back with a conviction on any charge. So it's like a fine line there, and you charge what you know you can get the conviction on because it, 
if you don't feel that the jury in your jurisdiction, and that's what we're dealing with. We're not dealing with the people across America. We're dealing with the people that won that jury in Minneapolis. If you don't feel that they would, in your estimation of prior cases that you've tried, would, com- would convict that officer of first degree, then you run the risk that they would come up with the not guilty or they would come up with the hung jury. So they just tried to do what was the safest thing, despite what myself and others believe that they should have done. Debbie, we just have a couple seconds left. How do you expect this to shake out? Nobody knows, Tom. I mean, nobody knows. I, I, I want I want the highest verdict of second degree, but nobody knows for yeah, sure what will happen. It seems so slam dunk. I just, you know, it's, well, it's going to be interesting to see. Debbie, thanks again so much Thank for sharing you, your expertise and your experience with us. It's great talking with you. Debbie Hines, I am DebbieHines.com and also on, uh, on Twitter. Thank you, Debbie. And uh, welcome back. Marco in Los Angeles. Hey, Marco, what's up? What's up is it's the anniversary of Lexington Concord, 245 years since we this whole thing started. And oh, yeah, the wanted- shot that heard around the world. You got it. And we, I say we need another shot heard around the world, but how anybody's going at it is totally backwards. What we need is to determine common sense up to the 1700s. Common sense that came out of the 1700s. Common sense in the 1800s, 1900s, 2000s, and common sense today. All of those epochs have a different reason for what was common sense. And so as a Republican, as a conservative Republican, I see myself as a fiscally responsible conservative Republican. What I'm going to do is I'm going to write each uh, century, common sense, send it to you and see if you and I can have a discussion on that. Because everything that people are talking about from racism to uh, the mess up with uh, religion, the Everything is just a mess, but common sense will tear it right down. It's what it's what um, Jefferson said about institutions learn things. You learn things in time, and then you have to change your point of view and your opinions. We are not doing that. We keep relying on what was common sense, you know, 200 years ago. It doesn't yeah. fit. No, I get it. And, and, you know, Jefferson had that whole riff about, you know, a man should be not changing the Constitution would be like requiring a man to wear the, the clothes he wore as a teenager. Um, you know, things change over time. You, you describe yourself, Marco, as a conservative uh, uh, Republican or a, a fiscally responsible conservative. What does that mean? What that means is that you don't take money from corporations. You deal with the people. These what, what the Republican Party is today has four wings. It has those nuts that on January 6th, it has the uh, old Moscow Mitch McCon man who just cons people. They all take money. And the third wing is like Mitt Romney and Liz Cheney who straddle things. And then there are the people in the DNC who also take money. They're all, it's all part of the Republican mess that we have. You can't trust anybody in government who takes money from corporations. Their vote should not count. But we have to. I'm, I'm, I'm totally to. with you. But, you know, it was Republican appointees to the Supreme Court who ruled that in, in 76 and 78 and, and again in 2010 with Citizens United that that's not money anymore. That's free speech. Um, yes, so, but that's totally erroneous. We can prove that that is yeah. totally, it's no common sense. No, I, it's totally OK, so we agree erroneous. on this, Marco. We completely agree on this, that, that money Great. should not be speech. Corporations should not be people. But what. What is it that makes you say that you are, you know, pick a topic, Social Security, Medicare, uh, public education, public roads, taxation. What 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 is the issue that causes you to say you're a Republican? Because all of that that you just said, except for taxation, 
was what Thomas Paine said we should do back then. He promoted Medicare. He promoted, uh, you know, uh, people having... Oh, the Social uh, Security Administration Social published Security. his booklet, Agrarian Justice, on their website. It's on their website right now. He, he proposed yeah. Social Security in 1779. But exactly. again, what makes you a Republican? The Republicans have fought against Social Security ever since 1935. But that's, those aren't Republicans. Those are these shills, these corporate shills. You keep calling them Republicans. So you're trying to, so the same way that I call myself a Christian because I'm trying to reclaim the, the values of Christianity and the teachings of Jesus, even if I'm doubtful about his absolute divinity, which would cause most Christians to say I'm not a Christian, I'm trying to reclaim the word. You're trying to reclaim the word Republican? Is that, is that right? Absolutely. As that young, as the person called about the Whig Party, the Republican Party started as the party to end slavery. It's Frederick Douglass. The whole thing is backed by yeah, females. Right. They were to end slavery. And so the, the, who was the pro-slavery? The Democrats. Nobody's calling them pro-slavery yeah. today. It's the Republicans who are pro-slavery. But they're all right, in 65. They flipped. They changed roles. Yeah. Yep, they sure so, did. So, yeah. why, so if the institutional Republican Party is now where the Democrats, the Dixiecrats, were prize, prior to 65, in other words, in yep. favor of segregation and in favor of blocking black people from voting, again, why would you call yourself a Republican? Do you think you can reform the party from within as a, as a single person? No, I think that we, we, you and I, you a progressive Democrat and me a uh, fiscally responsible conservative Republican can come together and create a party that is Republican, Green, and Democratic. Get these crooks out. They can't be in the yeah. middle with all their corporate funding. Marco, fascinating. I look forward to future conversations with you. Thank you. Um, Perfect, and. and yeah, and the Republican Party needs you. <laughs> you should show up at your local Republican Party and uh, run for precinct committee person and start getting some rational Republicans in there. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for being with us uh, today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. That includes you. In, a in any party, right? Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great day. You've afternoon. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.